Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, locum tenens should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if locum tenens is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from locums physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, and you're tuned in to yet another one of our, I guess you could call it traditional episodes, where we have a guest on and we talk about an orthopedic surgery topic. And today, we're going to talk a little bit about multi-directional instability. And we have Dr. Tufik Jilday. Uh, a little bit more about Dr. Jilday. He did his medical school at Wayne State University School of Medicine in Detroit, Michigan. He did his residency at Henry Ford Health System again in Detroit, Michigan. And he did his fellowship program at the Stedman Clinic slash the Stedman Philippon Research Institute at Vail in Colorado. And again, today we talk about some multidirectional instability. We talk about what it is, why it happens, how to treat it, how to examine it when you see these patients in your clinic, and what do you do surgically wise if they need surgery. So we talk about a lot of things. And if you have not already, go and subscribe to the YouTube channel and check out the video that accompanies this podcast for some more information. And uh, we hope that you all are enjoying our OITE slash our board review series book that has recently launched. We have gotten a, a lot of good feedback, so we hope that you all are checking that out, and we'll see you again next time. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Uh, Jill Day, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. So happy to have you on. So welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And um, and so I've been looking forward to this talk. This is something that I'm actually on a sports rotation now. And so I've seen a couple of patients with this. And uh, and so I, I was happy to go and dive a little bit deeper to prepare to talk to you about this. Um, but before we kind of get started with the, the topic, we I always ask our guests just a couple of questions, getting to know you a little bit better. So, you know, one of the questions we have is age old question. We have a lot of residents that listen to this podcast and everybody has their own little story, um, but kind of what drew you towards the field of, of sports medicine in orthopedics? Yeah. So when I first started residency, I actually wanted to become a spine surgeon, uh, believe it or not, which is a complete 180 from what oh. I do now. You know, I started working in sports and I had a lot of mentors who happened to be sports medicine physicians. So obviously I liked allocating time with them. And what I noticed in their clinics and in their practice is that they did a great job restoring restoring form and function to many types of patients, whether they're young athletes or, or older people. And what was uniform among all the patients I saw is that these patients actually did quite a bit better and it was a huge enhancement in their quality of life. And, you know, I appreciate the intricacies of the procedures and the and the diversity and the practice. So that's really what got my heart into it initially. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's always interesting talking to everybody and, and hearing, uh, you know, everybody's uh, stories of, of what brought, it, brought them into that specific specialty. And uh, another question that that we have asked in the past, haven't asked recently, so I need to bring this question back around, but any interest that you have outside of the field of orthopedics? You know, orthopedics is great, but any any other interest that you have? Yeah, definitely. I mean, 
I read a lot. I played guitar my whole life. Uh, when I was younger, okay. I play at local bars, uh, mostly blues and, and rock and jazz. I work out a lot. I'm, I'm sure that I share that interest with a lot of orthopedic surgeons. I'm a member of a lot of uh, local, you know, kind of intramural leagues and athletic leagues is here uh, as well here. And then I enjoy traveling as well. So, you know, I have a lot of multifaceted interests. Yeah, yeah, I'm very similar with the with the travel bug and and liking exercise as well. And actually, Jazz Fest is here. I'm, I'm in New Orleans. Jazz Fest is actually here this weekend and next weekend. So, you know, definitely like live music and and guitars is is always awesome, always a, a fun time. And uh, the last question I have for you is is being that you have finished practice. Not I'm not finished fellowship. Not too too long ago. What are some of the things that have worked for you? starting to build a practice because again we have a lot of residents that listen to this but we also have a lot of fellows that listen to this so what is what have you what have you found that kind of has started to work for you yeah so i think maintaining a good relationship in the community is important so here i practice in east lansing michigan and i spend a lot of time meeting with local athletic trainers meeting with local athletic directors going to meet with urgent care physicians primary care physicians really getting my name out there and sharing what what I can do to help the community overall. That's really benefited me. In addition, age old adage, uh, taking call helps build a patient base. So taking trauma call has been really pivotal for building a practice for me. And from my perspective, if you hips, if you fix someone's, someone's grandmother's hip, the grandmother might be inclined to send their grandson or granddaughter to you for their ACL. And, uh, you know, even in my my time practicing here, I've, I've seen the benefit of uh, good patient care in that regard. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's those are all things I'm going to take with me <laughs> as I move forward next year and start my own practice wherever I end up. I'm not sure where I'll end up. But no, awesome. Great. Oh, Dr. Dildad will go ahead and transition today and talk a little bit about multidirectional instability. And we have some people that are just brand new residents that only heard about anterior shoulder instability. They're not even sure what multidirectional instability is or MDI so what what exactly is it like? What is what is this whole thing? What does it what does it mean? Yeah. So uh, multi-directional instability is formally defined as instability in two or more planes. It involves instability in the anterior and posterior direction. And more recent descriptions have required uh, one of the directions to be inferior uh, as well. And it's associated with uh, involuntary subluxation or dislocation, as well as rotator interval laxity. And instability really occurs when the dynamic shoulder stabilizers become incompetent due to either congenital or acquired means. It can be caused by many reasons. This includes shallow glenoid cavities, increased capsular redundancies, and connective tissue disorders such as Marfan's, Ehlers-Danlos, and OI as well. Yeah. And one of the things that I remember, at least for the first two years of residency, I was just confused. Everybody talked about the rotator interval and I thought it was a specific structure and you know now I know what it is, but can we take a step back and kind of go over the anatomy of the shoulder and break it down a little bit and, and kind of talk about these different, you know, there's all these different complexes and ligaments and inferior, anterior, posterior. Can we kind of break down some of the anatomy of the shoulder and kind of how it relates to, you know, MDI and, you know, st shoulder stability? Yeah, definitely. So the shoulder is, is the glenohumeral joint, and it's responsible for stable motion in multiple planes with the min minimal bony constraint that, that it has. It's actually a remarkable structure for how much motion you can get in a normal shoulder without being unstable. And there's different components to this. There's static stabilizers and there's dynamic stabilizers. The static stabilizers consist of the bony anatomy, the labrum, the inferior glenohumeral complex, which is responsible for stability and abduction external rotation, the middle glenohumeral uh, ligament, which is responsible for stability in 45 degrees, the superior glenohumeral ligament, which is responsible for stability in, in an adducted arm, 
and the corpohumeral ligament, which is responsible for stability in uh, external rotation at 30 degrees. In addition, the dynamic stabilizers are really important. The rotator cuff is, is the main dynamic stabilizer that we all think about, and the purpose of that is to compress the humeral head against the glenoid. But in addition, uh, other things that I would consider to be dynamic stabilizers are the scapulothoracic musculature, as well as, as well as how the scapula interfaces with the thorax as well as proprioceptive and neuromuscular control. Now you asked about the rotator interval, and what that consists of is it's simply just a capsular tissue spanning between the superior aspect of the subscapularis and the anterior border of the supraspinatus, and it includes the structures of the long head of the biceps, the corcohumeral ligament, the SGHL, and then the capsule as well. Yeah. So again, that's just like an area. And, you know, one of the things I found is if you look at like an arthroscopy and they'll have a picture of it and they'll have a couple of things identified and it's kind of that space, right? Where the next time for residents that are listening to this, that uh, during a shoulder case, you may make an anterior portal. Sometimes we go through that rotator interval, but yeah, just like you said, so with our anatomy, we have the static stabilizers, your labrum, your glenohumeral ligaments, like the inferior, middle, superior, Cracohumeral ligament. And then you also talked about the dynamic stabilizers like the cuff, the scapular thoracic motion, and, and some of the other stabilizers. And so, how do all of these, I guess, kind of interconnect and make these kind of symptoms that we see in these patients that have MDI? Like, I guess you could call it the pathophysiology. Sure. So, one thing we all need to know that in this patient population, many of these patients present with scapular thoracic dyskinesia puff weakness, and deficiencies in their dynamic stabilizers. That's where this all starts. So basically, this progresses in a, in a vicious cycle where initially we have abnormal scapular mechanics that are commonly reported in patients with MDI, and uh, that contributes to an increase in the relative translational forces of the labrum and other stabilizing structures. As a result, these patients have increased so shoulder subluxation type, type events, which leads to increased pain and protraction which ultimately leads to weakness of their dynamic stabilizers, which ultimately leads to more scapulothoracic dyskinesis, which ultimately leads to more pain and the cycle continues and continues and continues. Yeah, no, I definitely think it's good to, to understand uh, the cycle, which is something I really almost kind of didn't even understand until my second <laughs> sports rotation in the clinic and like seeing these patients and, you know, looking at them from the side and seeing their scapula is protracted and how, you know, that kind of throws off a lot of the other things in the shoulder, just like you're, you're you know, you're talking about the dynamic stabilizers, it throws that off and you just get worse and worse and worse. And so when you see a patient in the clinic and maybe they've been referred to you and they've been, they, you know, they come and they tell you their shoulders been going out and you're concerned for MDI. Like what is, what is your conversation like with them? I guess when, when we're obtaining like a history of physical exam, like what are the things that you want to look out for? Right. So of course, with all my history and physicals, it starts with the basics, the OPQ, RST, et cetera. Uh, the things that I really listen for is an insidious onset and kind of non-specific pain in the shoulder that's activity related. And usually this occurs in the second or third decade of life. Incidentally, I find that there's a higher incidence in patients who participate in overhead activities like volleyball or swimming or gymnastics, and they, they complain of uh, decreased athletic performance. These patients may or may not have a history of traumatic events. They may or may not have a history of voluntary dislocations. And these things are very important to watch out for. In addition, it's important to elucidate a history of collagen disorders because the surgical stabilization and surgical interventions are actually less successful in this patient population. And very importantly, it's also important to make note of any psychiatric disorders that these patients may have. 
because you can see people who are out there uh, to get secondary gain. And it's important to, to make sure that, and, and look through the patient's chart to make sure that they're not able to willfully dislocate their shoulders because these patients respond poorly to surgical intervention as well. Yeah. And have you, have you noticed that there, is there any like gender difference, I guess that you've seen Cause I almost all the ones I've seen have been female. I'm sure there are male you know, patients with NBI out there, but you know, is there, has there been any gender difference, I guess, in your, in your experience? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah. And, and the literature has bore this out as well. There's a preponderance of females that have this disorders as compared to, to males. Okay. And, and like you were saying, so this is, you know, the typical history for this is kind of more of an insidious onset, not necessarily a contact, like one collision event, then leading to these episodes of instability. It's like something that's gone on through, like, I guess you could say years or months or something like that. Correct. And and that'll touch upon something I think we should talk about a little bit later, which is the discussion of laxity and stability. But yes, correct. It's more of an insidious onset type history. Okay. And, and so when you see them, you know, you, you talk to them and, you know, you got, let's, let's just say 17 year old female plays volleyball, you know, her shoulder has been bothering her for two, three years. And now she's saying it's, it's popping in and out. And when she's running on the, on the track field, she feels like her shoulders popping in and out. And, you know, you've got in your history, no history of Marfans or anything that you know of yet. What does your physical exam look like? So what exactly are you looking for when you're examining these patients? Yeah. So, you know, all my physical exams start with inspections and observation and, uh, and progresses to palpation, range of motion, strength, and then special tests. So initially what I look for in these patients is any disparity from side to side in terms of how their affected shoulder looks compared to their contralateral shoulder. And I look for certain things such as scapular winging, uh, scapular protraction. I look at the position of the scapula as compared to the thorax, particularly when the patients are flexing or flexing their shoulders, because that can really help elucidate a lot of scapular dyskinesia type symptoms. Next, I feel anteriorly for pec minor tenderness and tightness because it's been linked to pain and dysfunction of the shoulder. Because what pec minor tightness does is it causes a little bit anterior tilt and internal rotation of the scapula, which really creates an impingement type effect. And these are uh, the, between scapular dyskinesia and this pec minor tenderness and and tightness, these are really uh, modifiable factors that respond really well to physical therapy. So that's why I think it's really important to document this and have a good communication with your therapist as, as to what you're seeing in the clinic. So then, uh, you know, next I test range of motion. I test strength in, in every plane. So for flexion strength, internal, external rotation. And then I, I often move to uh, to my laxity tests. And these are really the mainstay of, of diagnosis here, not just for patients with MDI, but for patients with uh, unidirectional instability as well. And it's really important to conduct an accurate physical exam because it's, it's critical for the operative treatment of this entity as well, because failure to address all components of instability may actually lead to surgical failure. So the first exam I like to do in these patients is just initially test apprehension. And let's take anterior apprehension, uh, for example. To do this, I bring my patient supine, I bring their arm to 90 degrees of abduction and full external rotation. And usually in this position of danger, the patient feels instability. Then I also document relocation where I place my hand on the humeral head and apply a posterior force. And when patients feel more comfortable in this position, usually that, that indicates to me that they have a positive relocation test. What's important to note in patients with multidirectional instability is that they may display a sulcus sign. And what that means is that's a 
dimple that appears distal to the lateral acromion when inferior traction is applied to the arm. So this test is really performed with the arm in adduction or abduction in both internal and external rotation. And it's important to note in which planes the sulcus sign exists and which planes it's eliminated. And the measurement is quantified as the distance between the humeral head and the acromion. And a displacement of more than two centimeters uh, it's not not that you're going to measure it or anything, but it's important to know how much displacement you have. It's considered of a high degree of glenohumeral laxity. The presence of a sulcus sign with uh, 90 degrees of abduction, this is also something important to know and document. That can be indicative of inferior capsular laxity as well, and that patient might be better suited with a more significant capsular shift. Next, patients can with MDI have instability in more than one plane or more than two planes, as we noted. So it's important to document a good load and shift test, and commonly this is best done under anesthesia. And to do this in the clinic, I like placing my patient supine with the shoulder at the edge of the examination table. Initially, I like to center the humeral head on the glenoid by applying a small axial load and then gently translating uh, the proximal humerus, either anterior or posterior, depending on what test and which kind of instability I'm trying to achieve where a grade one is uh, indicated by a translation to the glenoid lip, grade two is a dislocation with spontaneous reduction, and grade three is a dislocation uh, without spontaneous reduction. Lastly, one test I like to conduct is the hyperabduction test, and it's another test that's really useful in evaluating laxity of the inferior glenohumeral ligament. In this test, I hold the shoulder girdle from elevating, and then I abduct the arm. And it's positive if you're, if you're able to abduct your shoulder beyond 105 degrees. Uh, most patients and most people with quote-unquote normal anatomy can only abduct to 90 degrees or less. Those are really the mainstay uh, of my exams and the patients that I'm thinking MDI. Okay. So to, to kind of summarize some of the things you're talking about. So again, when you see them, you're looking at their, their position of their scapula. You're looking for any um, scapular dyskinesis, any any winging, anything that you can observe and see. And then on palpation, uh, you palpate for any pec minor tightness because you said if that's tight, that can kind of shift things a little bit more anteriorly. And then if they have a, a protracted scapula, that makes sense that, you know, the pec minor would be would be tight in that sense, moving things more anteriorly. And then you also mentioned your laxity test. So doing your sulcus sign, we have the arm adducted inferiorly and you look for a dimple distal to the lateral acromion. I'm sorry, you also do your, your range of motion test that you said, and then you check their strength, you also mentioned. And then after that, you go to laxity test. So you do your sulcus sign, you do your apprehension where you said you have the patient's supine, you take them their arm into the abducted externally rotated position, and you see if they have a feeling of apprehension if their shoulder's going to come out. And then you do the relocation test where you put their hand on the humeral head and, and kind of center it back into the into the glenoid and that that's positive you know that's that's a positive apprehension and relocation you also talked about the anterior and posterior load and shift test where you said you have them patients uh, supine and you apply an axial force into the glenoid and you seated how amount of translation that you can get anterior posteriorly so one is to the glenoid lip two is if uh, as if it can, if it can almost dislocate or reduce, and three, it doesn't reduce. And then you also talked about hyper abduction, where you stabilize the shoulder girdle, and you abduct the arm, and you, you know, if that 
is always, you know, if they can hyper abduct, that may show you some inferior capsule laxity. I've seen some things where people are testing like the cracker ligament and you have your arm at like 30 degrees and you test that. Do you do that as well? Or is that more kind of, you know, something that you read about and, and it's good to know that that's where the CHL, the cracker ligament is tied at? No, I definitely do. And it's part of my routine diagnostic exam in these patients is particularly in those who have a connective tissue disorder. And I think this is something we'll touch upon a little bit later as well. The reason being is these patients with connective tissue disorders have abnormalities in collagen that results in capsular uh, insufficiency and laxity. And it's really important to, to note the state of the cracohumeral ligament because that is a, uh, a very important stabilizer in, in terms of stability. Can you just quickly just take us through how you test that? Like what's your exam to test the cracohumeral ligament as well? Yeah. So, you know, basically what I do is I test basically a sulcus sign at 30 degrees. That's also part of my diagnostic evaluation of whether or not I'm going to close the rotator interval operatively. So basically uh, when a patient has a positive sulcus sign with their arm in 30 degrees of external rotation, it can suggest pathological laxity of the rotator interval. And at that point, the closure uh, should be considered. So that's that's basically how I go through it. Okay. All right. And so one of the things we also read about, they also mention, or like you'll be doing test questions and they'll put like their, their bait and score. Do you do this for these MDI patients or can you kind of go over like what this is? Yeah, I do this actually almost for all my patients, whether it's MDI, if it's a knee instability case, whether it's a cruciate ligament or a patellofemoral. It's really important to document this because this can really tell us a lot about the patients we take care of. So the band score, it's a score that's scored out of nine points and uh, you examine both the left and the right side. And what that consists of is it's a number of maneuvers. And the first maneuver I always check is if you can dorsiflex and hyperextend your pinky beyond 90 degrees. If you do that, that's one point for the left and right side. Another one is you. I try to touch my the, the the patient, I have the patients try to touch their thumb to their forearm, which is very difficult if you don't have some sort of global hyperlaxity condition or connective tissue disorder. If they're able to do that, it's one point for the left and right side. The next, I look at elbow and knee hyperextension. And if, if patients are able to hyperextend those structures beyond 10 degrees, that's a point for each side as well. And then lastly, I have the patient fully extend their legs and try to touch their palms to the ground. And if they're able to do that, that's one point. And I document that for every single patient I really see in clinic, because once again, that can tell, that can not only help you uh, treat the MDI, but it can also help you uh, counsel the patients through some other connective tissue uh, sequela as well. Mm, okay. No, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And so you you quickly brief earlier, you quickly, um, you had mentioned kind of classification and talking about laxity versus instability. Can you kind of touch a little bit more on this and and what's the difference? And I guess the overall concept that we all need to understand about this. Yeah. So it's critical to distinguish laxity from instability. And the way I think about this is that instability is characterized by the presence of symptoms in conjunction with abnormal laxity. So you have some sort of deficiency in static and dynamic glenohumeral stabilizers. Instability is often caused by trauma, whether it's repetitive microtrauma or one giant single macrotrauma. And, you know, there's some nice acronyms that that help us delineate these things in our, in our mind. Uh, those are TUBS and AMBRI, where TUBS is trauma. It's unidirectional commonly. It's associated with a Bancard tear in the anterior inferior labrum. And often surgery, uh, arthroscopic surgery uh, these days is the best way to intervene here. AMBRI is, is, the, uh, is the other side of the spectrum where, uh, and it also matches uh, kind of our MDI type patients where the pathology is atraumatic, it's multidirectional, oftentimes it's bilateral, but not all the time. 
Uh, rehabilitation is the mainstay of treatment, and these patients oftentimes have a patchless inferior capsule. So that's kind of how I delineate these things in, in my mind. No, yeah, I think that's that's classic, or it, it makes sense that you need to understand the difference between these, I guess, they're completely different pathologies, you know, instability versus laxity. And so moving forward to treatment, so say, again, we had that patient you know, 17-year-old, I think that that's how old I said she was. Either 17, she was 16. However, she's in the teens. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> plays volleyball. Uh, you know, she has had this shoulder kind of discomfort for three years now uh, on, you know, it's, it's no traumatic event. It's, you did a physical exam. You got a positive sulcus sign on her. You got a Bayon score of eight. You also were able to shift her out anteriorly, let's say grade two or to where it can reduce. Uh, as well as posteriorly and inferiorly, there's also some laxity when you bring the arm into abduction. So, can you kind of take us through your treatment algorithm at that point? Say they've have they've hadn't had any type of treatment to this point; they just know that the shoulder's been hurting. Yeah. So for me, counseling is a big part uh, in in my patient care, and I think a big part that helps patients helps their outcome is really describing what's going on uh, in the simplest way possible is that they understand because the mental component is a huge part of the rehab here. And the mainstay treatment for me in these patients is rehab, rehab, rehab. And the literature has bore out that a minimum of three and and on, quite, to be quite honestly, uh, six or more months of therapy should be devoted to, to improving stability. And, and, you know, a lot of these patients stratify themselves to non-operative treatment. In fact, some literature has shown that up to 83% of patients with uh, atraumatic instability or MDI have good or excellent results with good therapy. And, and as orthopedic surgeons, that should be our goal uh, to make patients better without intervening. So uh, what I tell patients is that during therapy, the way it's going to proceed is I, I like the therapist to evaluate and treat their scapulothoracic dyskinesia, as well as their dynamic stabilizers to break us out of that terrible positive feedback cycle that we talked about. And that should be the primary focus of therapy. And the reason being is that improving the dynamic positioning of the of the glenoid and, and, and doing these proprioceptive exercises improves the glenohumeral stabilizers and makes patients better through improving the compression effect of the rotator cuff. And it helps with humeral head centering. Again, it helps us break out that nasty positive feedback cycle. Yeah. And do I've heard, you know, so therapy, big thing again, like you just said, posturing and and retrain the scapula and all the muscles to work in accordance and in function. Uh, now, do you ever, do you prescribe or give them any posture bracing or any, or any braces that you use or just physical therapy for the most part? For my practice, it's mainly physical therapy, unless they're currently participating in some sort of athletic activity in which they uh, uh, do not have any desire to take time off, in which case I'll try some sort of bracing at that time. But physical therapy is the mainstay for me. All right, cool. So so let's say the 16-year-old female has tried this for six months and she's now 17 <laughs> and <laughs> she has continued pain, the shoulder's still bothering her, it's popping in and out. She goes to sleep and wakes up, it's out of the sock and she has to pop it back in and she's not getting any better. What are your indications to operate and then kind of what are just some different operative treatments and then we can kind of uh, touch touch on each one of those. Yeah, so indications. It's my preference when talking about operative treatment with these patients to push this back as late as possible. The reason being is if you do a MDI type procedure, whether it's an open capsular shift or an arthroscopic application at a young age, they these patients can touch, stretch out again and may require a revision procedure. But nonetheless, for me, it's failed non-operative treatment for a period of six months or more in which the patient still has quite a bit of instability symptoms 
leading to pain. I like my patients to demonstrate compliance with physical therapy. So I'll read through the physical therapy notes. Oftentimes I'll call the therapist as well, see how they progress. And if they're compliant and if they've done it for a period of time and they're still feeling these laxity type symptoms, whether it's inferior laxity when carrying groceries to, to their car or anterior posterior laxity uh, in day-to-day life, that's when I open up the operative discussion with them. Okay. And so what's that conversation like? What are you what are you telling them that that their their different options are? Well, in my hands uh, for MDI, uh, my preference is to perform this procedure arthroscopically with an ar- arthroscopic capsular shift. Uh, but other options that can be done are open capsular shifts. In some surgeons' hands, those do uh, wonderfully. A rotator interval closure is one option that can be pursued in these patients. And then in very special circumstances, Capsular augmentation is something that that can be discussed. Okay, and so describe these the best we can for those that are that are listening or that want to check out some of the slides and and check out the video and see some of the things that we're looking at. Go and check out the video. But can you kind of describe to us, I guess, what an open capsular shift is? What exactly is happening and what's being done? Right. Okay. So an open open capsular shift, the approach that you would do is a delta pec approach. And this technique is performed with the shoulder in 30 degrees of abduction, forward flexion, and external rotation to minimize limitations postoperatively. The reason being is if you do not have the shoulder in this correct position, you can severely limit motion in these patients postoperatively, depending on the technique done and, and the extent of a capsular shift done. The purpose of this of this procedure, as you'll see also the purpose of the arthroscopic procedure, is to decrease the patulous capsule. To do this, you dissect down to the, cap, to the subscap, you incise the subscap, and then you reach the capsule. Here, you can make a T-shaped incision between the middle glenohumeral ligament and the inferior glenohumeral ligament. And capsular flaps are elevated from the neck of the humerus, and, are, and they're advanced to reduce capsular redundancy and to eliminate the inferior capsular pouch, essentially to eliminate capsular volume. And it's really important to discuss the magnitude of capsular shift. Now, this is more of an art than a science. And for each surgeon, uh, it can be a little bit different. And in my hands, it, it's kind of contingent upon the symptoms they, they tell you in clinic and, and the, the needs in their day-to-day life. The initial paper on this actually showed satisfactory outcomes in almost all patients, I believe 39 out of 40 shoulders, when inferior capsular laxity was eliminated. And when this initial paper came out, this was at a time where many surgeons and specialists thought that uh, MDI was a lost cause and there was no surgical intervention that could that could uh, eliminate it and, and help patients. So uh, the concept of an open capsular shift is a very powerful modality in making patients better. Okay. And, and so you're not, you're not necessarily, you're making the urine cysts, you're not necessarily cutting out the capsule and just closing it. You're, the capsule limbs will be overlapped by the time you're done with this and done with suturing. Is that correct? Correct. Yep. Ah, perfect. And so that's the open one. So how do you how do you do this, I guess, arthroscopically? So arthroscopically, the reason why I pursue an arthroscopic shift and plication are multifaceted. Number one, there's decreased morbidity. In other words, you don't have a big delta pec incision. It can be done through arthroscopic portal holes. In addition, you can get visual confirmation of decreased capsular volume. You can avoid the subscap trauma as well uh, in that you don't have to make an, a big incision through the subscap. Most importantly, you can address both anterior and posterior capsular labral pathology, where if you do an open capsular shift, it can be quite difficult to approach the posterior capsule. So for me, arthroscopically, my approach is I first do a diagnostic exam under anesthesia before I make any incisions and document which direction is worse in the patient, whether it's anterior, inferior, et cetera, uh, posterior. And then I begin the direction of primary instability. And I, and I proceed my shift from inferior to superior 
uh, which not only helps the patient and decrease the axillary pouch volume, but it also facilitates visualization as the capsule is shifted superiorly. And once again, the magnitude of the shift is important and it's a subjective value. There's no real easy way to quantify it. It's, uh, it's a surgeon to surgeon uh, preference and difference. And it also changes from patient to patient. But it's important to know that overly aggressive plications can result in loss of glenohumeral motion and particularly in external rotation, if, especially if you pursue a rotator interval closure. And so when you do this shift, are you like technically, are you putting anchors in the glenoid and then going and grabbing big, you know, are you grabbing stitches with the capsule and then just putting it there? Or how, I guess, technically, how are you doing that? How are you shifting it? Because, you know, you know, you, you you described it very well open where you you know you make your incision and your overlap and you sewing those together how are you actually shifting it arthroscopically right so the way i do it is i put anchors in the glenoid you're correct about that and then i make i uh, grab quite a bit of capsule and shift it underneath the labrum as well so it's one big uh, passive of tissue and then using one of my hands i take a grasper and sh- and shift the tissue from inferior to superior direction. So in doing this, I'm shifting the tissue inferior to superior, and I'm also shifting the tissue medial to lateral as well. And in doing this, both anterior and posteriorly, you're decreasing the capsular volume significantly. And I think it's important to note that when I do this, I like multiple points of fixation throughout the glenoid. The reason being is is so you increase the risk of success for this procedure, because with multiple points of fixation, there's less of a chance that this, that your construct will fail. So you're putting in, you know, maybe two anteriorly, like two anchors anteriorly, two posteriorly, or is there a certain limit to how many anchors you use or you just do it till the job's done until everything's shifted? There's no limit, but I would say that the contemporary research just on bank art tears say that you need at least three anchors for maximal points of fixation or for optimal points of fixation rather. So on these MDI type of patients, uh, you know, my, my preference is fiber tack. I, I placed, you know, multiple fiber tacks on the order of four or three on anterior, posterior, depending on, on where their uh, pathology is the worst. Okay. So, you know, again, we had this patient, we saw them, we diagnosed them, you did your exam that, you know, you did your, it came out anteriorly and posteriorly, so maybe even inferiorly. So you started inferiorly and decreasing all the capsular redundancies. And one of the things that you mentioned earlier is that you do your sulcus sign with your arm adducted, and then you also do it at 30 degrees. And if the you still have a sulcus sign at 30 degrees, you may have something with the uh, rotator interval or cricohumeral ligament laxity. And then you also mentioned a rotator interval closure. What is that, you know, I, I understand what it is, but I've gotten some feedback that sometimes we, I can go, we go over some people's heads and, and that they're still like first year and second year residents that are listening to this. And I'm trying to break it down as best way we can, but what is a, a rotator interval closure? Like, you know, and, and when is it indicated for you? Yeah. So rotator interval closure, just to reiterate some of the things we spoke about rotator interval is the capsular tissue between the subscap and supraspinatus. And in it, there's a corical humeral ligament, superior humeral ligament, and the long head of biceps. So once again, in the OR, I test for a sulcus sign uh, at 30 degrees of external rotation. And if they still have a sulcus sign at 30 degrees of external rotation under anesthesia that they also have at neutral rotation, that's when I consider rotator interval closure. Now it's, it's important because deficiencies in the rotator interval can contribute to instability of the shoulder with excessive inferior and posterior translation. So if this isn't addressed adequately in the operating room, the patient can undergo pancapsular shift and still have inferior sulcus type symptoms, which 
to me would be uh, less than ideal outcome for the surgery. So when I close the rotator interval, I simply just place the arm in 30 degrees of external rotation. And the reason why I do that is because if you close the rotator interval in neutral, the patient can have quite a bit of loss of external rotation postoperatively that's hard to bring back. And I pass uh, sutures just closing the interval between the superior glenohumeral ligament and the middle glenohumeral ligament. Oh, okay. You use an absorbable suture like a PDS or what, what do you use for right. your suture? Yeah, PDS is my suture of choice. Okay, nice, nice. No, that makes total sense. So that's when you do your rotator interval closure. Maybe this is a, I'm just curious. So if you have this in like a softball player or, or an overhead athlete, you know, you read some papers that'll say you shouldn't close the interval in, you know, in athletes or that are throwers because they, just like you mentioned, they need some of that external rotation in order to be able to continue doing their sport. So if you have an MDI patient that is a, pitcher or is a thrower, do you still close the interval or do you leave that? That's a great question. And I, I take care of a lot of overhead athletes in my practice. Firstly, let me just preface this argument by saying that in, in any overhead athlete, I try my best not to do any sort of operative intervention. If not, you know, I try my best to maximize non-operative treatment because it's very hard to get the extremes of motion and strength back in these patients after a uh, capsular pancapsular shift. Now, your question is, do I close the rotator interval? And the answer is no. I avoid that as much as possible because a lot of throwers, javelin throwers, et cetera, are so dependent on their external rotation and that their performance is so closely tied to their external rotation capacities that I, I try to avoid limiting that as much as possible. Okay. So if you had an MDI patient that was an overhead athlete, you would still do, you'd still do everything else. You would do the capsular shift, but you would not close the rotator interval. Okay, yeah, that that makes sense. And one of the, the other treatment options is kind of this capsular augmentation, where you do an allograft reconstruction. I've only seen one of these in residency, and 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 at the time it flew right over my head, and I was trying to understand it. But um, can you kind of talk to us a little bit about? When would you know? When would an allograft you know reconstruction of some of these different ligaments? Because again, you mentioned earlier that we you shifted the capsule, but you may not have we may not address the SGHL or the CHL. Or, or when do you do an allograft reconstruction? Yeah, so it's pretty cool. You saw one during residency. They're super rare cases. So as we talked about, patients with MDI with congenital con connective tissue abnormalities like Ehlers-Danlos or Marfan. They're challenging because the reason why they have MDI is because they just don't have the collagen that a normal person would have without these connective tissue disorders. And that leads to recurrent capsular laxity and instability. So the first procedure that you mentioned is, uh, and I think you mentioned a little bit earlier, is a corticohumeral ligament allograft reconstruction. So this is a technique where you use a semi-T allograft and you reconstruct the CHL. And it was initially described to restore stability due to insufficiency of the rotator interval. So these patients underwent surgery and they still had recurrent posterior and inferior subluxation of the shoulder that was refractory to their pancapsular shift. Um, essentially, they had a failed surgical stabilization with persistent laxity. And that's when I would consider a coracohumeral ligament or open up that discussion with the patient. In addition, there is another uh, type of allograft procedure that's been described. This was described back in the 1940s. It's called the modified galley technique, where you can restore anterior stability using a fascia lata allograft to reconstruct that inferior glenohumeral ligament. But to my knowledge, this is not done anymore, but it's important to know because it is an application of an allograft nonetheless. Yeah. Okay. You know, that makes perfect sense. And so say, for example, 
you, know, you do one of these procedures. Our, our, our now 17-year-old volleyball player, you know, she failed on op. We 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 found her. We operated on her. We did a, a shift of the inferior, anterior, and posterior capsule, and we left the rotator interval alone because she is a uh, a server or an overhead athlete. Postoperatively, what is your rehab protocol like? Do you do you let them? You know, do you have them in a sling for a week or two and then they start motion or, you know, what is your, how do you approach the post-op rehab? So what I tell all my patients and therapists and and parents of my patients as well, is that it's my job to make the shoulder stable and it's the therapist and your job, your being the patient's job to titrate your motion back to the point where we have a stable shoulder through all ranges of all physiologic ranges of motion. So in doing this, I have my patients immobilize their shoulder for four to six weeks. And to be quite frank, it's 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 six weeks for almost all my patients. After a period of immobilization, then we start working aggressively on passive and active range of motion with a therapist, and then we progress to strengthening. You will find, those who treat MDI patients will find, is that patients rarely have issues getting back their motion after surgery if you don't do an overly excessive capsular shift and that it just takes time with these with these patients and that it takes good therapy but it's your job as a surgeon to make sure that you, they have a, a stable shoulder through all planes uh, usually patients can return to full activity around approximately six months post-op and that's what i tell most of my patients as well okay yeah around six months or so okay yeah that makes sense oh dr Joe, that this has been um you know a great podcast i learned a bunch anything else you want the people to know about mdi or multi-directional shoulder instability that we may not have covered or any last words or anything that you want to say well i just want to take a moment to thank you for the opportunity to come on here and that when you or some of the listeners start treating these patients with mdi just be patient Take your time in the clinic, explain what's going on, explain why uh, they have to do non-operative treatment for such a long time, because it can be frustrating for a lot of these patients, but it's important that they understand why that's being done. And that when it becomes time for surgery, that you do a thorough exam on these patients and you take your time doing a good exam under anesthesia, because that can really alter and affect your outcomes. And we all want the best outcomes for our patients. We want to make sure we approach things correctly. So it's really important to approach each patient individually and that there's no one size fit all treatment for these people. Yeah, very, very well said. Dr. Jodey, uh, how can the people listening reach you if you want to you know, follow you on social media or website or anything that you have that the people can can follow you? If you want to if you want to give it to the people, go for it. If not, that's totally fine. Totally up to you. But, it, you know, just I always give everybody a, an opportunity to shout themselves out. Appreciate it. Yeah. So I'm getting a website. It'll be jilday.com, J-I-L-D-E-H. Uh, social media accounts are for my Twitter and Instagram is at uh, jilday.md. And yeah, feel free to reach out. Uh, my email and, and accounts are all over the internet. So if any of you guys have any questions, it'd be an honor to help out uh, fellow orthopedic surgeon trainees. So again, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Uh, those that are listening, hope you really enjoyed the episode. Feel free to go and leave a review. Let us know how much you enjoyed it. Hit the subscribe button. And uh, until next time, and again, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks again. Have a good day. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. I hope that you enjoyed it. Again, Dr. Dilday did a great job breaking down shoulder multidirectional instability. So we hope that you all understand it a little bit more and if you have not already please hit the subscribe button so you get updates of everything that we do because sometimes we have some time sensitive updates that you all can benefit from 
Check us out on all of our social media platforms at Nail It Ortho. And we will see you again next week or in a couple days if you like our OITE slash our board review series. Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, locum tenens should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if locum tenens is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from locums physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com.